Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays at voxoc.com slash live and at the Eldorado Performing Arts Center. So this is the time where you take your seat. Over there in the back, Mike. Stop talking. All right, good morning, everybody. <laughs> good to see you. I'm just joking. You guys, I'm joking. I know you guys know that. It's good to see you guys. My name is David. I'm here to uh, give you some welcoming and some announcements this morning. Uh, enjoying the weather, right? It's finally like a winter weather. All right, tough crowd. <laughs> Anyways, it's good to see you guys. I'm glad you guys are here. Hey, listen, uh, we got a few things coming up uh, for December. Next week, we have what's called a Vox Holder meeting. If you want to know about Vox, where it's going, what's been happening, next week we're going to be talking about that, and it's going to be incorporated in the service so that you don't have to come back another another night. So we will be doing that. Uh, there'll be um, a message, and then Mike will jump into um, talking about just where we're at and where we're going with, with Vox. So that'll be a great Sunday to be part of and to come back to. The service may go over a little bit, so just be aware of that. So um, that will be on a third, so that's a week from today. So, so be here. It'd be great to, to hear. Um, if not, you can pick it up on online as well. Uh, the other thing is on the 13th, we have what's called our Christmas parties. And if you've been part of a table fellowship, that will be your table fellowship for that day, a Christmas party. And it's just going to be a time to get together to celebrate. And we're going to be opening up some more homes. So go online, look out for some of those that are going to be posted. Um, we're looking for, um, for everyone to be part of that so that you get to know more people here at Vox get to celebrate Christmas together. It's going to be an exciting time. And uh, we are doing a Christmas Eve service, and it's going to be at 10 o'clock on the 24th. I'm so thankful for that, because I've been in church for a long time, and sometimes services go to like 12 p.m. So it's good to be done at 10, start at 10, be done by 12 noon, and then have the rest of the day to kind of enjoy Christmas Eve. So that'll be on the 24th. And same for the 31st. We're going to be doing that um, Sunday at 10 o'clock. So that you guys can go have fun, uh, New Year's and bring in the New Year. So that is the morning. That's going to be what's coming up. It's really good to see you guys. Uh, we have, uh, Tim's going to come up and do, uh, share a little message and then Izzy will come up and do, um, some music and then we'll take communion together. So if this is your first day here, your first time here, welcome. We want you to, to feel, uh, comfortable. Uh, communion is a place that we want everybody to come to. We want everybody to come, uh, meet Jesus at the table. Um, and if you don't want to, great. It's, it's really up to you, but we would love for you to be part of that. So I hope you guys have a great morning here at Vox. Thanks for being here, and we're going to bring Tim out, and he's going to continue the morning. Have a great day, guys. Oh, oh. Good morning, Vox. How are you guys? We are not talking about football. Some of you think about football way too much. There's... Seek first the kingdom of God, and he will add all things unto you. Um, Mike sent me a text this morning saying, are you still good to preach this morning? And I said, my self-image is in the cross. It really is. (laughs) Hey, Thanksgiving's a bizarre time. Uh, For some of us, Thanksgiving is a great time. Um, All of our family is on East Coast, so we have a pretty intimate gathering of just me and my three boys and my wife. And then we spend Thanksgiving Day with a bunch of Biola faculty. It's just a great time. But for a lot of people, Thanksgiving is a hard time. Uh, 
It's when uh, reality doesn't quite meet expectations and you wanted your family to be closer, you wanted to have family of your own and that's not happened, or your family is just a really difficult place. Um, I want to talk about self-image this morning. I get One of my good friends here at Biola is Dr. Chris Grace. He's a psychologist. And uh, we started the Center for Marriage and Relationships. Fascinating being friends with a psychologist and a philosopher. That makes it for some interesting conversations. Here's what my psychologist friend tells me. Your self-talk is not part of who you are. It's all of who you are. Self-talk determines your success. It is the number one factor when it comes to um, self-fulfillment, pleasure, thriving. So self-talk's an amazing thing. Some of you have amazing self-talk. Some of you, your self-talk is so much better than what it should be, right? Um, Some of you, just looking at you, if we were privy to your self-talk, we'd be shocked what your self-talk is, how bad it is, how low it is. Uh, The first time I became really aware of self-talk is I was a high school wrestler. I was uh, on the varsity team my freshman year all the way to my senior year. Uh, Wrestling is a very bizarre sport. It it doesn't matter if you're a junior or senior. They hold a tournament in your weight class. And if you can win that tournament on the team as a freshman, well, guess what? You're on varsity. Well, I had a martial arts background. I had a judo background. Judo works really well in high school wrestling. So as a freshman, I beat a senior. So imagine his senior year. He's dreamed of his senior year. And now this freshman kid who knows judo comes on and I beat him. So imagine what his self-talk is like. Now, the bad news is I met Leon Zimmer. Leon Zimmer was from Mount Clemens High School. Leon Zimmer was one of these kids in high school who looked 35. <laughs> Remember those kids? He, was, he had a scar from his temple all the way to his chin. And I was like, that's not fair. You should have to tell me where the scar came from. Vietnam? I mean, come on, how old are you? Well, Leon is the only person in Michigan wrestling to go four years in a row undefeated during the regular season. Now, by the way, interesting about his self-talk, he never won the state championship. He lost only once, four times in four years, and it was always for the state championship. He tried out the U.S. Olympic team, did not make it, but made the, the American Pan Am team. So here I am wrestling Leon Zimmer as a freshman. The guy has muscles upon muscles. You walk in and you weigh yourself, and it's a psychological battle. So we walk into the weigh-in. He has on a shirt that says, train to kill and stay alive. I have a shirt that says, I love Gumby, right? I was defeated before I ever took one step on the mat. I was already done. I knew I wasn't going to win. I just wanted to make it past the first round, which I never did in in four years wrestling him. Then I did a crazy thing in college. I did stand-up comedy. Stand-up comedy is crazy, right? It's different speaking to people and you're pleasantly humorous. It's different to go to a a place where people want to laugh and they're jaded. And then I, I graduated. I went to grad school where you're constantly being evaluated 24-7. I remember the last class I took is teaching you to be a professional, teaching you to go into academia. So you had to create something called a vita. A vita is our fancy way of saying a resume. So here we're putting our resumes together. Now, I have three small kids at the time, right, working a full-time job trying to do grad school. So the first person to send the resume is Ted Streifus. 
Ted is one of these guys in grad school, single, that started his own academic journal while in grad school. Looking at his publications, which, by the way, is how we get judged. It's publisher parish. Everything else is just a sideshow. It is how much have you published as an individual and what publishers and what tiers. So you can imagine, I did, publications, right? Ted has all these publications. I'm putting in things I wrote like in third grade, like Our, our Friend the Beaver, like a retrospective, right? So I graduate and then I start teaching and I get evaluated at the end of every semester. At the end of every semester, students do what we call idea evaluations. They judge me, and my promotions are partly based on how good these evaluations are. One student said to me, uh, Dr. Milhoff, how do you feel about these evaluations? And I said, well, you know, we have our evaluations of you. It's called your grade, right? You know, kind of thing. <laughs> then I speak for family life marriage conferences. Do you know 80 people are selected from the audience to evaluate us? 80 people, and your status on the team is based on those evaluations. It never stops. You are constantly evaluating yourself, and your self-talk is either going to rescue you or it's going to send you some really dark places. Uh, let me, look at this quote from Kaylee Harrison. She is um, the only woman in the United States to win a gold medal in judo and win it two consecutive Olympics, which is amazing for her because her self-talk was so bad, she had to hire a team of psychologists to work with her before she started to turn around. This is what she said the day that she went out to defend her gold medal. This is my day. This is my purpose. I'm not afraid to win, Kaylee Harrison, Olympic champion. You want this, you take it. You work for this, prove it. You are the best, the best, the best. Kaylee Harrison, Olympic champion, this is my day. Right? Self-talk is incredibly important. And it took her years to turn around her negative self-talk. Now, before we take a look at what the scripture has to say about self-talk, let's get some terms in place so that we can talk about it. Next slide. When we talk about self-esteem, self-perception, self-image, we break it up into two different categories. Self-perception is what is just undeniably true about you. You're single. Um, you don't have kids. You're not the boss of your company. Your grade point is your grade point. That is verifiable. You don't have hair, right? <laughs> These are verifiable things, right? Um, you come from a, a broken family. You, your, your Thanksgiving was um, just you and a another person, and no family wanted to get together, right? These are just verifiable facts. That's what we call self-perception. Now, self-esteem is how you feel about the facts. How do you feel about your grade point? How do you feel about the fact that you're, you're single right now? How do you feel about the fact that you're married with no kids? How do you feel about the fact that you're at this particular um, point in your career or job? That is what we call self-esteem. So things can happen to you that are undeniable. Um, uh, so I've written some books, right, which is fun to do, is great to do, but my books have never won a Christianity Today Book of the Year award. In my circle, it's the Christianity uh, Book of the Now, submissions are being determined actually as I speak, right? Uh, who's going to get nominated? It's like the Oscars. Who's going to get nominated in what category? My book was um, nominated in the category of evangelism, but it's going up against Oz Guinness, who's like one of the top Christian apologetic has-beens. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I love Oz Guinness. 
Um, and so do a lot of other people love Oz Geddes. So self-perception, I don't get the award. I don't get nominated for the award. Now, what does that do to my self-talk? What does that do to my self-esteem? Now, at this point, it does no good for you to tell me everything I should feel good about. At this point, that, doesn't, that just doesn't work for me. Oh, Tim, come on. You have a family. You have uh, this education. You've done, it, it just doesn't work because for me, I've isolated one factor and my self-esteem is resting currently on one factor. Very hard to talk me out of it. We'll talk about why psychologists say that's true. Next slide. Okay, so um, there's three questions we ask our entire lifetime. We never stop asking them. We actually call this the Michelangelo effect. This literally scripts and sculpts our self-esteem. One, how do I look? Uh, That is, how do I look physically in comparison to other people? Um, How do I look... uh, esteem-wise, when people look at me, do I feel like they esteem me? How do I do in comparison to other people? So this is you comparing your lifestyle to your neighbors. You're comparis- uh, comparing your job situation to other people at your particular category, right? How are your kids doing? Right? We've all heard testimonies, right? And God bless these families. It's awesome. But, you know, testimonies like, you know, and our kids, you know, uh, between their junior and senior year of high school started a nonprofit to end the sex trade industry. And we're like, I just want my kid to clean his room. I just, right? So how do I do in comparison to other people? And then how important am I, uh, my self-assessment, does anybody care about me? Am I important to anyone? We call that the Michelangelo effect. Now let's take this one step deeper with some more profound questions psychologists say we wrestle with. Go ahead. Uh, oh, oh, so let me answer those questions for myself. Go back. All right, so I was the interim teaching pastor at E.B. Free Fullerton for a year and a half, right? Um, when Mike left, I stepped in. Uh, to, to do that. Well, so then when they're finding their senior pastor, they hired a search firm to do it, right? Which is very common for big churches like E.B. Free Fullerton. People asked me if I'd throw my hat into the ring. So I just, I just want to close the door on that. So I asked the Lord, you know, what should be the next step? And I just got the feeling, okay, meet with the head of this search firm. So he comes and he meets with me and Noreen, and you can tell from the word go, uh, my ticket is punched because of my age. Now, he couldn't legally ask me my age, right? But he asked so many different questions to find out I was not in the age category they're looking at for, which was basically low 40s is what they wanted. Anybody above that, you were done. Well, I'm not in my low 40s. By the way, I asked when I said yes to this year and a half, I said, but you've got to give me a break from preaching because I'm still a professor at Biola. So it's interesting to see who Evie Free brought in during that break. Okay, now David Fletcher is a friend of mine. He's a great guy. Uh, But they all look like that. (laughs) That's what they looked like. By the way, it is funny to see me with hair. I haven't. Okay, so all of them were faded jeans, funky t-shirts, like one guy's t-shirt went down to his knees. It looked, it looked like a nightshirt. I don't know what it was. And all of them were hip, cool, fun. Let's read the Bible from my new um, uh, phone that can launch missiles. Let me just, and I just, I, I really felt 
for the first time in my life, I'm, I'm not what they're looking for. I'm old. I'm, am I irrelevant? Because I don't look like that. Now, there were, there were a ton of people who said, hey, we don't want that. And, and the new senior pastor of, of Evie Free's wonderful. Darren's a wonderful man. His preaching is top-notch. He's a great guy. But he, he, he comes out with red, high-top, converse um, tennis shoes. Okay? So for the first time, I thought to myself, I don't look like that. Now, there's a deep part of me that doesn't want to look like that, but, but I want to be asked and turn down the job, right? Um, how well do you do? Well, it has to do with attendance. Church life is all about attendance. For functional reasons, you dip below a certain number, you can't keep the doors open. But, but for sure, people are asking, okay, how many people are going to leave? And can the interim teaching pastor keep people in the seats? How much will we lose um, now that the senior guy has left who is loved by many people, right? So I, I'm getting these updates every single week, what the numbers are, right? And then the elders are the ones whose opinion really counts at a church, right? Next. <clears throat> So we, there's something called cognitive conservatism, which is really interesting. Here's the bad news. The bad news is your self-esteem was settled at a really young age. Your self-identity was cemented at a really long age. Like we're talking for sure pre-teens. Pre-12, pre-11, your self-identity was cemented. And psychologists tell us, unfortunately, it's really hard to change. There's a woman named Betty Edwards. She teaches drawing classes to adults. She wrote a book called Drawing on the Left Side of the Brain. She says this, most adults determine if they can draw or not and knock themselves out of that category at the ripe old age of eight. At eight, you're determining if you can draw or not. That's cognitive conservatism. At a very young age, you think you're pretty or not. At a very young age, you think you're masculine or not. At a very young age, you decide if you're funny or you're not. And these things stick with us for a very long time. It's really hard to change your self-talk. So we ask three categories, right? If somebody gives you a compliment, can you receive the compliment? And can that compliment actually change your self-talk? Very interesting. If it's going to change your self-talk, we have to work through three categories. First, we ask the question, is that person competent to give the compliment? Right? So information must come from someone we consider knowledgeable, knowledgeable, and knowledgeable about us. Like, you might come up to me, and you might say, oh, Tim, who cares about Christianity Today Book Awards? I read one of your books. I think it's the best book ever written. I'd be like, thank you. That did nothing. Now, not to be mean, not to be mean and you'll never know, because I'll say, oh, thank you so much. God bless you. I, that was... That was awesome. And I'll walk away and it didn't do one thing. Why? Because, because in my mind, you're not Christianity Today editorial team. You know what I mean? So one, I have to determine if you're competent to give me the compliment, right? And do you know me well enough to give the compliment? Okay, second category. Personal. The message sent must be about you. It must be personal rather than general. If you were to say, oh, I love the teaching team at Vox, it doesn't do anything for me, right? Because I'm one of many. Uh, people could say, oh, the people at Vox are just great. They love God. It doesn't do anything for you because it was general, not personal. The compliment must be personal, 
right? I enjoy you. I think this about you. Third one, and this is the most confusing. Third, it must be reasonable. You have to perceive information as reasonable in terms of your experience. So if you came up to me and said, oh, Tim, I think you're the best Christian writer I've ever read, I'd be like, okay, you need to read more. <laughs> because that, that just is not true. Because that's too much, right? So, uh, uh, um, so my wife is a speaker. She, she doesn't like to speak but she's really good at it. So we do these family life marriage conferences. I mean, these are audiences of like a thousand people, right? And I, I so respect my wife for doing it, but I will literally say to her, now again, we get, eight, we get evaluated, a thousand people get evaluated by 80, right? Because statistically that's what the curve is. Well, one person can say something negative about my wife and she really takes it personally. I can say to her, honey, you are a great speaker. My wife says to me, oh, but you're my husband. Yes, and a PhD in communication and a communication consultant. Yeah, but you're my husband, right? See how that works, right? So it has to be reasonable what you already believe about yourself. <gasps> okay, that was all preamble to get to where we want to go. Now let's take a look at Psalm 73, Asaph. Asaph is one of the um, largest writers of the Old Testament. He's written, I think, 15 psalms. He was a choir director of David. He was an artist. And he sees Israel both at its height and the depths of Israel. And he's really disturbed by what he sees happening, wanting to believe that God is good, but seeing a lot of counter evidence. So in Psalm 73, he starts with an affirmation of God's goodness. He says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, I'm really struggling. By the way, I love the fact that the Holy Spirit includes psalms like Psalm 73 in the canon of Scripture because it's okay to wrestle, deeply wrestle as Asaph is about to wrestle. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. I, I was almost done with this. I'm walking away from the Lord. I, I can't reconcile this anymore. My steps had almost slipped. Next. Um, uh, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, uh, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You, you know that old joke where somebody says something about God and you just step away because you're like, the lightning's going to come, but the lightning never comes, right? And we have incredibly arrogant people today, and it doesn't seem like, like they're... Um, reaping what they're sowing. They're actually doing really, really well. And that was bothering Asaph. Go ahead, next. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. Right? And they're doing really well based on our metrics. Right? They're prospering. They're eating well. They're experiencing success. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. They're actually skating free in their arrogance towards God. Next. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge from fatness, and the imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. God hates oppression. He's always for the marginalized. These are people who make fun of the marginalized and benefit off the fact that they're marginalized. They mock and speak wickedly of oppression. They speak from on high. They have, they're in positions of authority. Next. 
They have set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. They say, how does God know? And is their knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. So that was Asaph's issue. What's your issue? When you look at God, what's the thing that bothers you? What's the, what's the charge you have against God? God, I, I could have sworn you would have done this by now. I prayed this prayer diligently, and I've heard nothing from you. If anything, things have gotten worse, not better. So why even pray? I have a friend of mine who was out of work for four years, and always he'd get a job interview, always he'd be in the top two, and always the other guy got the job. So my friend would say, would you pray for this job interview? And I'm like, oh, I hate that you're asking me to pray for this job interview because it doesn't work. It doesn't seem to do anything. And Asaph is in this terrible spot. Next slide. This is Robert Ingersoll. He's been called America's favorite blasphemer. Ingersoll would go um, to picnics, fairgrounds, and he would challenge God. He would stand up in front of uh, people and he would say, I challenge God right now to strike me dead. I'm a blasphemer. I think God's a joke. I think he's immoral. I think if you followed the teachings of the Old New Testament, you'd be insane or you'd be morally wicked. And I challenge God if he's right now, I challenge him to strike me dead. If he's real, I deserve to be struck dead and I challenge him right now. In 20 seconds, I challenge the Almighty to strike me dead. And then he counted really loudly. One, two, three, four, Five, you can imagine the audience are going, Lord, just hit him. <laughs> right? Six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Then he'd start to mock God. Eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, all the way to twenty, he'd just laugh. And people were mad, and they actually wanted to sue him. People took him to court. They tried to litigate against him because of his blasphemy against God. Now, how did it end? Oh, he ended on his deathbed. He realized his mistakes. His family was a mess. No, no, no. He had 20 grandchildren, is considered one of America's top orators, and was married to his wife for over 50, 60 years. Seemingly, nothing happened to him. And Asaph had had enough. God, I expect you to do things, and you're not doing them, and it's really bothering me. Next. Uh, The result, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and arrogant. I was like a beast before God. I was so angry. I wasn't thinking straight. I was mad. Next. So how do you stop it? When you're on a negative spiral with God or another person, how do you stop it? How do you pull yourself out of this negative spiral? Asaph does two very interesting things. One I think we can pull off, and another one I think is the American church. We're in in trouble when it comes to the second one. First one, feed forward. Think of the impact your communication is going to have on other people before you start to spout these um, accusations against God. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Now, know what Asaph is saying and what he's not saying. Asaph is saying, yeah, be careful how much you're spewing this doubt and anger against God because your words can have impact on people and that doubt can spread, especially when kids are young. But Asaph is not saying that you shouldn't have a trusted person or two or three. 
when I was going through grad school, it was pretty brutal. It was UNC Chapel Hill. Everybody was postmodern. Everybody was militant against Christianity. And I needed people to process with, people who would not be afraid if I shared a little heresy and what I'm kind of thinking through, and they wouldn't freak out. We need people like that to sit down and say, I'm sick of this. I'm sick of pursuing God and getting nothing. I'm sick of taking steps of faith and nothing ever happened. You need people in your life like that. But be careful how widely you disseminate this anger towards God. Next, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived. Until I came into God's sanctuary and saw two things. One, the awesomeness of God. And second, the sacrifice of God. This was the sanctuary. Men and women, here's what concerns me. And this is weird to say at a place like Vox, okay? I I felt so much better saying this at EV Free than I do at Vox. But let me say this about Vox. I am so glad that people feel comfortable to come to this church as you are, socioeconomically, to come however you come. We want you to be here, right? But we have lost a little something that we meet in an auditorium like this. And some of you look like you're going to go to the beach or church and probably both, okay? Um, Not one laugh. All right, so we've lost a sense of the holy today, and I think we're poorer for it. We are too familiar with God. Now, that's a whole nother conversation, right? But take a look at this. Eugene Peterson said this. I love this quote by Peterson. Comprehension of the invisible begins with the visible. My wife and I lived overseas for a year. We would go into sanctuaries next where you just felt something. You walk through those doors, you wouldn't dream of looking at your cell phone. You wouldn't dream of raising your voice. There was, a, there was something there that just hushed you. And I think that was good. I think that's appropriate. We live in the land of Abba. Right? We live in the land of calling God Daddy, which, by the way, was never meant to be interpreted that way. No one ever refers to God as Daddy. That word is to be interpreted as, uh, Abba is what you'd call the most respected elderly person in your community, not this Daddy thing. It's one of the most misapplied concepts in the New Testament, right? But, but um, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he got reaction. He, he said, listen, here's how I want you to pray. Our Father who... Are, wait, stop. What? Yeah, our Father... What? I'm supposed to call Jehovah Father? Yeah, you're supposed to call Jehovah Father. And they're like, I cannot do that. Well, he's asking you to do that. Well, I can't because that's Jehovah. Right? Now, that was an error, but we're on the opposite side. We call, we call God Daddy in a heartbeat. And I think we've lost a little bit bit of this. We ought to just be in a little bit of awe of God, right? We need to have that holy moment every once in a while. Next. He goes, so nevertheless, so fill in the blank. What's your sticking point with God? What's the bump in the road with God? Nevertheless, this is still true. I am continually with you, God says. You have taken a hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. And afterwards, receive me into glory. Notice how personal that is. You have taken a hold of my right hand. And I think heaven's worth it. 
See, as Christians, we don't give import to heaven as much as God gives import to heaven. New Testament church lived on the concept of heaven. Yeah, life is really, 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 really hard now. This is the persecuted church, but heaven's going to be worth it. Paul says, I'm banking on the fact that heaven is worth what I'm going through right now. Next. And besides blank, I desire nothing on earth besides blank. Now, what goes into your blank? I desire nothing but this one thing on earth. Now, what goes there? Now, at this point, we evoke C.S. Lewis. Don't pray what's supposed to be in you. Pray what's in you. God already knows what's in you, by the way. Now, all of us were like, oh, crud. I can't put in, I can't put in that blank what I really want to put in that blank because I'm a Christian. So I'm going to have to say Jesus. Right? I'm going to have to say, and besides Jesus, I desire nothing. But you don't believe that. Right? So God says to me, Tim Yohoff, what is more important to you? My affirmation of you or Christianity Book of the Year Award? (laughs) You. And God's like, stop it. (laughs) Right? Next, you. I desire nothing on earth. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. By the way, that isn't necessarily where he's at. This is what positive psychologists tell us. Live out what you want the future to be. Right? So affirm what should be true of you, and as you wrestle with God, still affirm what your head's telling you, even as your heart's rebelling against that next. See, we live in a world of endless hierarchies. We engage in a game called Bigger and Better. You ever play this game? Bigger and Better was a college student's play. So you start off with a paperclip. You walk up to a house and you say, I've got a paperclip. Can you give me something bigger and better? Yeah, I can. I can give you a pencil. That's bigger. Okay, awesome. You give them the paperclip. You take the pencil. You knock on another door. You say, hey, can you give me something bigger or better than a pencil? Yeah, I can give you a dollar bill. Okay, that's better. Okay, boom, boom, boom. And one time we played it, they brought uh, people pushed in a car that wouldn't start. A car. <laughs> Welcome to American life. Bigger and better. Hey, you're living in this house, but of course you're going to have upward mobility. You're working at a job right now, of course it's going to get better. Of course your family is going to get bigger and better. Of course, I'm going to get better. I'm going I'm to have accolades. I'm going to move up. That's just what Americans do. And God is saying, yeah, but I don't know if the American dream is what I've called you to. I called you to the kingdom. The kingdom of God is more important than the American dream. I think the American dream is probably the thing that has hindered the American church the most, is we expect God to do certain things, and God has said, listen, I'm sorry. I never promised you that. I promised you my presence, salvation, and heaven. Next. Here's C.S. Lewis. we got to use C.S. Lewis. I'm under contractual obligation to use C.S. Lewis every time I speak. But Lewis wrote an essay you have to read. It's the best thing Lewis ever wrote. It's called The Weight of Glory. And in it, he addresses what we're wrestling with. Um, Will you be satisfied with what you have and who you are? This is what Lewis says. If God is satisfied with the work, the work may be satisfied with itself. It is not for her to bandy compliments with her sovereign. 
For glory meant good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking our whole lives will be open at last. So here's what God says to me, and I still wrestle with this. I know what the answer is, but I wrestle with it. This is what God says to me. Tim Muehlhoff, at the end of the day, whose opinion counts more? Mine or Christianity Book of the Year Awards? Who counts more? Doggone it, Lord. Both. I want both. I really do. And God's like, Tim, I have nothing against Christianity Today Book of the Year Awards. I have nothing against that. And I don't think God's up there pulling the strings, by the way. Tim, until you get your attitude fixed, you're never going to get one of those awards. I don't think God works like that. God's saying, I'm fine with that. By the way, what about all the things you have that you should be thankful for? But at the end of the day, who cares more about the work that you're doing, me or what other people are going to do at Biola University or other people? Who really counts more? And it's okay for you to be in process. But Tim, freedom is going to happen when you can honestly say, Lord, of course I want to win awards and have my books sell well, because I, I, I want to have them have an impact. But God says, but at the end of the day, is it all right if I say, Tim, I'm proud of you? You know, I graduated, three-sport three athlete. I graduated with a 199 out of high school. No one accepted me in college. No one. They laughed at me. Eastern Michigan University, which is not a bastion of academics. Eastern only has one question on their application form, and that is, do you have the money with you? Okay, that is all right. They turned me down. They turned me down. I was so frustrated. I called them. As a, as, as a senior who just graduated, I'm amazed I did this. I called them. I said, I'm really frustrated. Is there anything I can do? I said, yeah, you can meet with a board of pro three professors and two administrators. You can state your case, why we should accept you because of your great point. Done. So I show up, sit down. They look at me and say, Mr. Mielhoff, we're looking at your grades. What would be different here that obviously was not different in high school? And I said, well, I have no illusions of doing D1 sports, and I'm going to work really hard, and I'll go on academic probation right out of the gates. And they said, okay. So I, I walk out. I sit down. The academic advisor comes up and says, hey, how did it go? They open the door, and I'm like, oh, crud. It does not take long to say no. It takes long to say, yeah. I sit down, and they look at me, and they said, you're accepted, and you will go on academic probation, but we're not starting you on academic probation. And do you have the money with you? Okay, so I... <laughs> Next. So let's do God's ethos. This is really convicting to me to apply these questions to God, right? And again, this is where you're at. Don't think, well, the right answer is this, but where are you at? Number one, is God competent? Does he have the credibility in your life to say, you know what? You're okay. I love you. You're doing well. Knowing where you came from, you're doing well. Okay? Yeah, I'm giving you a compliment. Now, will we receive God's compliment? Will that re-alter our self-esteem? Are his messages personal? I think this is where we lose it. Right? Does God love all Christians? Of course. Does he love Box? Of course. But does he love me? I, I think we wrestle with that deeply. 
Here's what Jesus does. In Luke 15, he's asked about God's love. Specifically, he tells his three favorite stories. He says, this is God's love. A woman loses a coin. She turns up the whole house looking for the coin. A shepherd loses one sheep, leaves the 99, goes after the one. One prodigal son leaves, and he runs when the one comes back. Do not miss what I think is the most important point of all three stories. It's the one. It's one coin. It's one sheep right? It's you that he runs towards, right? Now, you believe that or you don't, but Jesus died for you individually. For the joy set before him, Hebrews says, he endured the cross, right? Now, do you believe that? And it's okay not to believe that, but God is saying, I love you specifically. Then last, are his messages reasonable? No, they're not. That's what's hard about it. Jesus died for me. The son of God died for me. That doesn't make sense. Because I'm not worth it. I'm not worth Jesus, right? And God is saying, but you are. You are. And I'm saying, but I'm not. Go back to one. Am I competent to say you're worth me giving my son for you? Oh, yes. Now, that doesn't mean we can't complain about things, right? Okay. Awesome. I hear steps behind me. I'm so over. I thought literally somebody's going to yank me off the stage right now. It's probably the Holy Spirit. All right. So here's, let me say the one thing I love about Vox more than anything. We have our holy moment every week. I don't care how you're dressed. I don't care if you're reading your Bible from a tablet or a phone. We have our sacred moment every week. And that sacred moment is the Lord's table. Every week. It ought to be a holy time. Uh, Izzy's going to come up. She's going to do some worship music. And you are free to come whenever you want. But let me just say this. I think today, let's just have a pause. Let's have a holy pause before we come up to the table. And let's say, Lord, this is, this is the body that was broken for me. This is the blood that was given for me. How much you must love me. And it is okay to come to this table not believing any of it. I don't believe Jesus died for me. There's no way that can be true. And God, I am kind of mad at you. I'm kind of mad that I didn't get this, 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 this. But be mad in process. Right? Asaph didn't stop saying God was good even as he was wrestling with it. So don't not come to the table if you're wrestling. Come and eat the bread, drink the wine, knowing God's intention is this is for you. So let me pray for us. Father, we think of uh, the person who said to Jesus, help my unbelief. Father, we're all in process. We all wrestle with being in such a crazy materialistic culture where we're judged on how we look. We're judged on how we do and are we important to our boss, neighbors, family members. It's hard. But this morning, as we listen to the worship music, And as we prepare our hearts to come to the table, I pray pray the Spirit would speak to us. Lord, help us to understand the depth of your love and the depth of the sacrifice. That was for me. We do pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for this holy moment. Amen. Oh, so we just finished Thanksgiving. And some of you are very thankful, and you have great reason to be thankful. And some of you have great reason to be thankful, and you're not. 
you're stuck. You can't get past it. Well, God wants to be with you in the process. To the church at Rome, Paul said this, how do you know God's for you? I tell you this, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. And when some of you hear the all, you discount it. So Paul says to the church at Galatia, he says, let me be clear about this. I was crucified with Christ, right? So as you walk out of here, know one thing as you wrestle and are in process that Jesus thought you were worth it to die for you. And we are not to reject his compliment. Now you can be in process and embracing it, but today I pray the Holy Spirit will open your eyes to the fact that Jesus died for you personally. Uh, We have a community pastor to my left. If you want to process, think, have somebody pray for you. We have giving boxes. And again, the reality of boxes, we kind of go from week to week. So if God has blessed you financially, we sure would not reject your kind gift to us. So let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful. And sometimes that's by faith. Sometimes our head knows that Jesus died for the world. Our head knows that we were part of that, but our heart struggles to embrace it. So, Father, I leave this congregation with Paul's words. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. And I pray as we leave, we would know that Jesus died for us individually. We do pray this in his name, for his sake, his glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash voxcommunity. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com slash participate.